And your thinking brain is taken offline. Your thinking brain doesn't work very well when you're in fight, flight, or freeze. Welcome back to another episode of Diversity on Fire. We are in a mission to inspire new thoughts and dialogue by sharing our open conversations on all types of diversity-related topics. Joining the conversation today is Thomas McGreevy. Thomas is a professor emeritus of business, founder of the Lift Method Meditation, and perhaps most importantly, husband, father, and grandfather. Today, Tom and I are talking about the unlikely pairing of politics and meditation, specifically how we can use his new lift method meditation as a way to navigate challenging conversations in this upcoming political cycle. Welcome to the show, Tom. Thank you so much, Heather. This is going to be great. I've been looking forward to this since we first talked. Me as well. Before we dive into today's topic, I always like to start off by having you share a little bit of kind of your personal backstory. So would you tell us a little bit about Thomas McGreevy, some some events, circumstances, mindsets that make you who you are? Okay, well, the best place to start is my childhood because it's a little bit unusual. I am a gypsy of the world. My father was a spy and we grew up in Thailand and Germany and many points in the U.S. and ended up uh, in high school, just outside of Washington, D.C., as all spies eventually work at the Pentagon. And um, that gave me, a, a, I think, a very different perspective. I've always felt a little bit like an outsider, even in the U.S. I think that Asian upbringing has you know, affected me in, in little ways when my synapses were forming, that they gave me a, a different perspective. Um, but since then, um, let's see, uh, went to University of New Hampshire. Um, also uh, majored in business and was also in Army ROTC. And so my first paid job was as a uh, field artillery officer. And then um, I joined up with the New Hampshire Army National Guard and began an academic career. I began the academic career really quite by accident. I was teaching courses uh, in the evenings at um, New Hampshire College, which is now Southern New Hampshire University. Uh, just to make some extra money while I was consulting. And they came after me and said, we want you to work full time with us. So I was first an administrator. And then later, um, I taught an adjunct course for New England College, and they offered me a professorship. And I just kind of never left and stayed there. And so that was my academic career. Out in the world, I've also done um, some business. Uh, I had a uh, an arcade and a bar and grill for a while it was called Antics Grilling Games, it was in Manchester. And um, I've tried my hand at screenwriting as an avocation. I haven't sold anything yet, um, but I did attract the attention of, of a couple of folks like Kevin Gage, uh, who was an actor who was in G.I. Jane, uh, Con Air, also Heat. And he really loved one of my screenplays and worked hard to try to get it made, but it's very, very hard to get a movie made in Hollywood today. Uh, so um, I'm still waiting for that million-dollar contract with Charlie's Tehran cell number. And let's see. So then Lift Method came along. I know we're going to talk more about that later on, so I won't say too much now. But that's literally changed my life in so many ways. Cool. So, yes, so this is a lot. This, there was a, like a lot of pieces that I could go off on tangents. Didn't know your dad was a spy. I think that's fascinating. And obviously you have military background. 
Aren't both your kids military as well? Yes. Yes, they are. Uh, they both went to um, University of New Hampshire as well in the same ROTC program. My son went through Air Force and daughter through Army. And uh, right. let's see, my daughter's separated from the Army now. She's in uh, emergency care um, at Concord Hospital. Uh, my son is still in the Air Guard. He was active duty for a while and now Air Guard. He just made lieutenant colonel which um, was a, a moving moment for me because my experience as a cadet and as a very junior officer was that lieutenant colonels are old men. And now when my son's a <laughs> lieutenant colonel, what does that say about me? <laughs> oh my yes, gosh, that's yes. hilarious. Oh, how perspectives shift. This is, how, this is what happens in the world. <laughs> Absolutely. We want to talk about both Lyft and politics, but I want to start out with politics because you post some of the most thought out, thoughtful, and engaging posts that I've come across. In addition to that, you get a lot of engagement, which is not always very nice. So... I want to start with that. First off, where did your political journey begin? And you don't, by the way, you don't have to share any political sides or anything like that. We don't know where, we don't need to know where you stand. Just tell us about the journey of kind of finding your voice there. Okay. It's, um, I remember it very clearly. It was during the, uh, the crisis of 2008, 2009. I was teaching a, uh, a strategy course and um, we basically just threw all the books in the trash and did each day out of the New York Times trying to figure out what was going on in the world. At the beginning of that crash, it was just so chaotic. I, I remember opening my, um, we used to get envelopes with our retirement accounts and mine had dropped 40%. And I recall throwing up in the back of my mouth a little bit when I saw that. And so um, I, I basically it started doing research on politics, um, I was looking historically at um, different administrations and different economic policies during those administrations. And I discovered something that for me was really remarkable. Up until that time, I had been what I would call a sleepwalking Republican. I was raised in a conservative house and my views were generally conservative. I was sort of like fiscally conservative, but socially liberal. And I think a lot of people fit into that category. And I, I bought things like trickle down. I thought trickle down as an economic was, was fascinating. The idea that if you tax less and the economy grows more as people make more money, the government actually can take in more revenue. And I thought it was just counterintuitive enough to um, appeal to the provocateur in me. And uh, so anyway, um, I did this research and what I found out was that um, Ronald Reagan was the biggest spender since World War II, and I didn't know that. And furthermore, trickle-down policies don't work at all. They're, they're, they're a bunch of garbage. It doesn't work. And there's not very much evidence behind them at all. And it was, not only did it change my politics, I, I went out and changed to independent um, away from Republican, but it also opened my eyes to changing my mind. And most people can't stand when they hear evidence contrary to their deeply held opinions. And what I found is that going through that experience and realizing that everything I thought was wrong was really great. I liked it. And I started to say, you know, what else have I got to figure out here? And that kind of it was a, a turning point 
in my life. And um, for, as I said, a couple of reasons. Um, and since then, I've, um, I'm not really at home with the, the Democratic Party. I've been to many events and that sort of thing. And I'm, I'm kind of cigars and bourbon. I, I don't, uh, you know, I fit with the Republicans in many regards, but not ideologically anymore. And then, um, and then I really kind of got to posting and that stuff, uh, probably with the leading up to the 2016 election, when, um, in my view, in my humble opinion, the Republican Party basically lost its mind and started really going off the deep end with conspiracy theories and all kinds of stuff. And, and now, as you know, we're in a terrible position where people struggle to try to find out what's true and what's not true. And it's really, it's, it's an awful thing for a democracy. You know, we rely on our voters being informed and, uh, you know, per perfectly fine people, well-intentioned, believe garbage. And it's, 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 it's frightening to me. So calling this out and, and um, this is where you, you picked up probably some of my social media posts and that sort of thing. Uh, that I would kind of lay out exactly why somebody was wrong or why a particular position was crazy and took a lot of flag for it. Interestingly, most of those people uh, who are so critical are actually friends of varying degrees. One of them is a retired lieutenant colonel over in Thailand. Uh, it's another fellow former Navy guy. Um, so, I mean, off, off of the debate field, we are friends and, and drink together and stuff like that. But, um, it's sort of like, uh, I don't know if you remember the old Saturday Night Live, um, Jane, you ignorant slut. There's that tone that we have in our, in our um, repartee. So, and I think that's the, the startling thing is I got to, I would watch the interactions and I, I kind of deduced that either you are completely a Zen person or that there must be a relationship there because you were so you you used the term just a minute ago that you would call them you know being crazy but i i never really saw you do that you were so diplomatic about all of your mm -hmm. and i'm acting like this is past tense you've had some recent ones too in the responses even when they came across as they were as though they were attacking from an outside perspective mm -hmm. because that's what i'm looking in on as an outside perspective and i all uh, you mentioned something earlier too about how upset and triggered people get when you mm -hmm. kind of put their beliefs in in check and it's like or question them or show them evidence that they're wrong oh man are are we so deeply egotistical in our belief systems and that's mm -hmm. the hardest challenge i think because it becomes an identity that that people take on how do you stay so calm i mean even though these are people that you know and probably respect in, in other ways, there's been a lot of super negative and attacking going on. How do you stay so calm? Mm -hmm. Well, I did, uh, as we were talking just before the show, around 2019, I did become very Zen-like. Um, well, sort of. And um, But what I've learned is that it doesn't work to attack people. You know, for example, um, you've probably surmised by this point that I'm not a fan of Donald Trump or his presidency. And I credit a lot of the um, misinformation out there, you know, directly to him. But it doesn't make any sense to attack his followers. And so that's where what I try to do is always circle around to the facts. 
And I usually post, you know, one or two credible sources behind what I've said and make a, a as thank you for the compliment of you know, as logical an argument as I can. That's not attacking because once you go down that path, nobody learns anything and nobody um, is, is willing to give in or change. And they just kind of, as you said, get their heels dug in and, and we get nowhere fast. So I think going back to that epiphany of 2008, 2009 with the financial crisis, um, I wasn't in an argument with somebody. I was simply uncovering facts and looking at, you know, what was the federal budget in the Reagan era? What was the federal budget in the Clinton era and, and so forth? And what policies actually worked and what policies didn't work. And of course, one of the things I learned is that the government actually has very little to do with the economy. We're a capitalist society. It's not communism where the government controls things. So right off the bat, all of the blame that goes to government is also generally unfounded. You know, the government gets blamed for high gasoline prices, and that's all supply and demand. Uh, gasoline is a commodity. You know, we have there are world prices for oil, and then there are the capacity of refineries determines how much petroleum we have going out to the gas stations, and that's that's all supply and demand. It has nothing to do with how somebody feels about fossil fuels or the environment or any of that stuff. So sticking to the facts, I think, is, is sort of like my my mantra. Absolutely. I think the the biggest challenge um, that I see is that with all of the misinformation, with all of the bias coverage, everyone is is portraying things in the way they want to narrate it. So facts, black and white facts, are just that, facts. Mm -hmm. But when we dress them up and when we coat them with whatever uh, narrative we want to tell, it's easy to completely sway um, in whatever direction you want. So that's, it is, it's such mm -hmm. a challenge. And in order, I mean, this is straight up my opinion, but in order to remove yourself from that and see clearly, you really have to understand where your own biases come from and where the information you're consuming is coming from so that mm -hmm. you can distill mm -hmm. it down well, to the basic facts. Right. We have a major news network that was actually um, caught red-handed with uh, all their election fraud that they didn't believe it. They knew it was nonsense and they were all telling each other it was nonsense, but because they were afraid of losing viewers, they indulged it. So, I mean, it doesn't get much worse in terms of, of you know, how do we try to ascertain what facts are when, when the leading, the, the, the news network with the most viewership in the United States is, is flat out lying and admitting it. <laughs> This this is true. <laughs> um, well, in comes the lift method because I started thinking about this and I heard you talking about, you know, kind of on demand and we'll we'll get to that in a minute. I want to just kind of start out with the initial story. But I started thinking if he's got something that could be potentially on demand couldn't we wrap that into some of the really, I mean, all hard, hard conversations, right? All tough things that we have mm -hmm. to go through. But but with this political cycle coming up, which I just, I'm already pre, pre-warning myself or pre-prepping myself for crazy. <laughs> but can't we use this? <laughs> so tell us the story of how Lyft Method got started. 
Okay, that's uh, it is absolutely the craziest thing that's ever happened to me. Um, I got interested in what was going on at Johns Hopkins uh, with psychedelics. And um, I, I read a book, How to Change Your Mind by Ma Michael Pollan. I would highly recommend it to anyone who tells the whole history of psychedelics. And it turns out that, that these were breakthrough drugs in the 1950s and 1960s that were positioned to completely revolutionize psychology. Um, they, were, they were curing people with alcoholism and not like AA where the person is like, I'm never going to drink again. They were curing them like, ah, take it or leave it. Really interesting stuff. I read about a soldier who um, was struggling with uh, severe PTSD and was scheduled for two psilocybin therapy-assisted sessions at Johns Hopkins. He came in for the second session and said, the PTSD is gone. I want to work on relationships this time. And just like fascinating stuff like that that got me going. And but I am way too scared to go out and buy magic mushrooms, and I don't I don't want to end up in jail like everybody else. And um, you know I wouldn't know what I'm doing and that sort of thing. But I had also heard that um, sativa cannabis is psychedelic or can be psychedelic, and so I mustered the courage to give that a try and devoted. This is the summer of 2019. Devoted like five weekends. Saturday or Sunday mornings on, on those weekends to seeing if, if sativa could do something psychedelic. And by the third time, it did. And I had a full-on shamanic psychedelic experience, which um, as anybody who's, who's had these will tell you, it's, it's very life-changing. So I have to preface all of this and say that about a year and a half before that, I was meditating one day and I was a terrible meditator. I would sit down to meditate and completely forget what I was doing and go get something in the kitchen and then be like, oh, my God, I was supposed to be meditating. And now I'm standing here, you know, pouring a, a Sprite Zero in, in the kitchen. Um, that, that's, you know, I was losing focus and terrible. But somehow or other, I stayed with it, thinking that, you know, everybody can't be wrong. There must be something to this. And one day I was meditating in the morning and felt absolutely high. I mean, my head was high. I felt like my body was floating. And I was like, this is it. I've discovered it. This is what everybody's been talking about. And I chased it for a year and a half. Never happened again. It just, it was gone. So I was, you know, the, this, the, the connection was there and I was thinking about it. So these five Saturday or Sunday mornings um, over the summer, uh, I had, you know, a couple sessions were playing with dose a little bit, but the third Sunday, um, was was the game changer for me and i saw um there, there were a few you, you have actual it's it's like sort of like lucid dreaming being awake while you're dreaming and knowing what's going on my mind was very clear um through all of this but hallucinations and everything and one of the things that happened was that i was sitting there and of course um cannabis gives you kind of a head high anyway and this was sativa cannabis which is exclusively head high and what i came to recognize as my inner guide came forward and was saying when you meditate do this focus on this feeling now and so i did i started a meditation routine and then started it again and the inner guide came back it's like you're talking to yourself but you can surprise yourself Kind of like if you have a dream that surprises you, you remember, hey, I'm the author of that dream. How did I create something that surprised me? It's, it's similar to that, um, at least in my experience. And so anyway, 
this inner guide made me start over meditating like five times, practice it, practice it, practice it. And I remember thinking at the time, if this works tomorrow morning, it's going to be amazing. And then a few more things I saw. For example, I saw a plate uh, in, in a restaurant of a filet mignon and a baked potato with sour cream and butter. And I knew it was the six ounce portion of filet mignon. And the inner guide voice was saying, instead of getting the larger portion, do this in your head. That really nice high feeling. Then later on, I saw a martini glass. And the message was very clear. Instead of ordering a second martini, do this, bring on this head feeling. And, and it's like being high anyway. But there's no impairment with it. So the next morning, I tried it and it worked. And that's the first time I could bring on this head high sensation um, all on my own, not taking anything and with no impairment, no substances, just bringing it on. And I used it initially like operant conditioning, as I described, you know, instead of going back to the buffet for seconds, I could sit and say, oh, wow, it's, I feel really great. I don't need to go get something to eat. And then I started researching it and learning more about it. And um, something had actually what happened was Kathy was angry with me about something. And you know that feeling when somebody you really love is angry with you and you get like a full on fight, flight or freeze. Technically, what they refer to as an amygdala hijack, your amygdala takes over your brain, fills you with dread, makes it actually hard to breathe at times. And your thinking brain is taken offline. Your thinking brain doesn't work very well when you're in fight, flight or freeze. So I did that thing in my head and I was fine. I was like, all of that emotion was just gone and my ego had dissolved. And I was just like, you know, darling, how do we fix this? What do we need to do? I didn't have to defend myself. I was just focused on solving the problem. And that's when I realized that I had something that was pretty amazing, that if it, if it could stave off an amygdala hijack like that, um, this had you know big implications. And so the next thing I had to do was teach other people how to do it. I could do this and it was amazing, um, but I would tell people about it and they looked at me like I was crazy. And I'd be like, well, you know, one day I'll figure out how to teach you to do it. And it took like another eight months to figure it out. And um, one day, the, the turning point came one day, I was driving home from my daughter's house and we were moving along at a pretty good clip and went over a little hill. And in going over that hill, I felt a lifting sensation at the top of my head. It's kind of like the downhill on a roller coaster. Um, and even if anybody's listening now, if you just kind of like hop up and down in your chair a little bit, you can feel that up at the top of your head a little bit. And I was like, okay, it's a little like that. And then um, Kathy and I went swinging. Swinging is a little like it. When you swing back and forth, you can feel that pleasant fullness in the front of your head swinging back and in the back of your head swinging forward. Um, there's a reason why babies like to be rocked and um, people stand in line for six hours to go on a roller coaster ride or old people like rocking chairs. There's something to all of that stuff. And so, and you've, you've taken the course. Those are the meditations that I put together that simulate those things. Um, I put together a group of like 20 people who agreed to act as guinea pigs. Big guinea pigs. There were a couple of uh, veterans in the group, a few students in the group. I had just amazing results. Uh, there's a testimonial on the website uh, from a young woman who was one of my students. And she stayed after class. I would offer free meditations after class for anybody who was interested. And she always stayed after, always joined in the meditation. And one day I asked her, you know, what have you been doing with this? How's it going? And she was like, 
oh my God, I was in an intense argument with my roommates, really intense. And all of a sudden I did the lift and I was fine. And I had, and, and then she said that not only could she ward off panic attacks that she used to get like twice a week, they stopped happening. And I can't guarantee uh, uh, results like that for everyone, but what I've got is um, pretty cool. No, I love that story. So it, I think that's that's such a key example um, when you talk about the situation with you and Kathy when you're in this argument and tensions are high, mm-hmm. and then this this student with with a dish again tensions high and being able to break that tension. And again, this is mm-hmm. kind of bringing us back to the political conversations. That's where we get, I think. I personally love having conversations about politics when people can maintain non-attacking, non-aggressive right. conversation, right? But the second you get into, the second someone feels triggered because they're feeling like they're challenged or their beliefs might be wrong, that's when things mm-hmm. start to elevate. So I love this idea that we can use the lift method to kind mm-hmm. of take us out of that, to kind of reset the mental um, process. Right, right. So I'm not a psychologist and, and, and I have no formal training in the area, but I have done a lot of research trying to understand how this works. And my understanding of it um, is, is something like this, that anxiety especially that gripping anxiety comes from the subconscious brain, specifically the amygdala. But the subconscious brain is excellent at managing your heart rate, your breathing, blood pressure, all of that bodily stuff it just does in the background. And it also triggers danger alert. But the subconscious brain cannot process logic, reason, language. It just doesn't have any capacity for that. So that that all happens over in your thinking brain, the prefrontal cortex or the neocortex uh, that us humans have that is so cool and why we can, you know, make all of this technology that we're using now and everything. That's awesome. But we have evolution hasn't um, caught up with the modern world in just the last few hundred years. Uh, lots of things happen that trigger that survival fight, flight or freeze um, that aren't really life threatening. But we, your subconscious brain doesn't get it. But if you can make your subconscious brain feel high, then it's relaxed and it, it, it lets go of the anxiety's grip can be um, ameliorated. And so that's where, you know, you're not, you can't talk yourself out of anxiety, but if you can make your brain feel really, really good as in being high, then it just, it dissolves it for a second. And that dissolved feeling of anxiety gives your thinking brain a chance to come back in and, and take back over and you're, you're rational again. That's where it's, it's really amazing and the ability to do that. I mean, people use cannabis to overcome social anxiety and things like that, that um, and, and it works the same way, except I figured out how to tap into it naturally. I do have a hypothesis. I can't prove it yet, but my hypothesis is that what we're doing is triggering a neurotransmitter that's called anandamide. It was discovered by Israeli researchers um, who were trying to understand how THC, the active uh, ingredient in cannabis, affects the brain. How does it make the brain feel really good? And they discovered receptors 
in the brain that bind almost perfectly with THC. And they were like, whoa, how, how does this happen? I mean, we did not evolve to like pot. That's not what happened. How then, then they went searching and discovered this neurotransmitter anandamide that works very much like THC in the brain. In fact, it's now thought that anandamide is what's behind the runner's high. They used to think it was endorphins, but actually endorphins can't fit through the blood brain barrier. Uh, so it's something else in the brain, which um, now it's commonly thought to be anandamide. So I believe that's what we're triggering with this. Um, so getting back into politics, if, if some, somebody says something that triggers that, um, uh, that irrational response to fight, flight, or freeze, if you, if you hit your brain with this and you can do that, you just relax on the spot and you don't feel the need to defend yourself. You don't feel the need to you know, overcome, you can actually, your thinking brain comes back into action and your thinking brain is out of action when you're in the middle of a screaming match. So um, this way of recovering, and that, that's what I said before, I've become more Zen-like. Um, I really don't get upset about things anymore. I, it's, it's remarkable how different life is when you don't have those things that are, are tricking you all the time. Or I didn't know how much anxiety I was walking around with until it was gone. So, so now uh, Kathy and I used to joke that it was like anxiety was like wearing an itchy wool sweater. And now it's like, oh, great. I took that itchy wool sweater off and I feel marvelous now. <laughs> nice. Well, and, and I, I, I have to say, so, and I'll share my experience with it in just a minute, but I want to touch on if you have feedback on the most challenging areas that you've found for people. And the reason I ask this is because I know for me, I have a very active brain, always thinking up different scenarios, always on the go, never stops. I, I think it's supposed to not stop. But anyways, mm -hmm. <laughs> but um, it's very hard to get into meditation for some people. And it was for me. It took a lot of practice. It took a lot of commitment and consistency. So we, we talk about meditation just as a general meditation as something that's wonderful but what's the biggest barrier that you find to actually getting people to to do it, to practice it enough to get the effect? Oh, that 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 is definitely the the, the biggest challenge. We ran a study uh, at New England College on the online course for Lift Method, and probably had like twelve percent completion rate. So so many of the people who volunteered for the oh, study. Wow signed off on the informed consent and, and took the course. Um, the vast majority never completed the course. And uh, so that's where, um, as my partner Haley and I are um, working on a revised course, ways to build in that engagement. The lift definitely helps with meditation. I don't know if you noticed this in, in trying it, but if you, if you can make your brain feel really good, your brain doesn't want to wander and think about random stuff. So it makes the actual practice of meditation uh, a little bit easier, which is like, like a side benefit. But I think people are skeptical and, and doubtful until they begin to feel it. And when they begin to feel it, they'll turn a corner because then it's like, oh, wow, this is, this is really cool. I want to do this more. Um, but getting them to that point, yeah, that takes a lot of cajoling, trying, um, and uh, uh, as I said, we're working on ways to try to build uh, that engagement in. Uh, the course you took has got some videos and then some meditations. The new one has got video 
around the meditations in there first. So it's more uh, personally engaging. Um, I can say things uh, as people are learning that, you know, hang in there, a little encouragement and stuff like that. That That's where we're going with it. But um, yeah, I mean, I have a joke that um, most meditators know this one, but it's um, if people say, I don't have 10 minutes in the morning to meditate, you, your answer is then you need 20 minutes because it's, you know, if your mind is that busy, <laughs> you have to work harder at calming it down. I don't say that because it usually pisses people off when you say that, um, but it's that that practice is really um, is 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 life changing, and a lot of the benefit of meditation. I can't take credit for that. I mean, that's ancient and it's been out there for a while. And you don't need me for meditation. I don't consider myself an expert on meditation. I use meditation to teach the lift. And once you've got the lift, that's that's its own thing. Uh, but the benefits of of meditation, uh, you know, experiencing your real self apart from your thoughts most of us think that our thoughts are us and and they're not there is a book on uh buddhist philosophy for children that i want to get for my uh grandkids the title of the book is your mind makes thoughts like your butt makes farts and as you get to for kids <laughs> oh that's God. probably a good way a good yeah. way of describing it but it also i mean Thoughts are random. They just occur. You don't have a lot of control over the thoughts that pop up in your mind. And from a survival standpoint, they are, your brain is designed to play what if games and prediction games around things that might be dangerous or might be scary or things that you're worried about. Um, it's designed to do this. So taking some time and um, letting your mind relax and just be yourself. There's a there's a great picture, a cartoon picture of this guy walking his dog. And the thought cloud over the guy is bills and work deadlines and all kinds of problems he's dealing with. Thought cloud over the little dog is the actual beautiful scenery in front of them. You know, being in the moment, enjoying what's there. And people's minds get so busy and so racing and so full that they can't enjoy the moment. And, and over a long period of time, that, that leads to a lot of problems. We're supposed to be able to just be in the moment and enjoy life. There's a, a really moving uh, TEDx talk by a veteran who describes how um, the army taught him to always be on guard and, and look for the enemy because the enemy is trying to kill him. And he got very good at it. And now his whole life is scanning things. He goes to restaurants and sits with his back to the wall facing the entrance. He's always aware of uh, uh, potential dangers. And then he'd say, I had dinner. He didn't say I enjoyed dinner. I had dinner. And he was exposed to mindfulness meditation in a yoga class and, and just broke down sobbing. It was the first time in years that his mind was able to just relax and, and be in the moment. You know, it's not really thinking about nothing in meditation. What it is, is it's observing your thoughts. And when your thoughts arise, and thoughts always will arise, it's impossible to think about nothing. You can't do it. But when they do arise, to just let them go and come back to what you're focusing on. It might be your breath or maybe an object or some styles have a mantra that you recite. But anything to keep your mind focused on something so that when thoughts interrupt and, and arise, you can let them go. And, and you've got to remember, those thoughts are neither good nor bad. They're not all helpful. They're not all true. They're just thoughts. 
Um, unfortunately, we believe a lot of them, especially the ones that get overly self-critical. So when I went through and what I'm what I'm practicing now is that so I'm on the six and seven where you're practicing kind of the uh, recalling it without the mm-hmm. meditation piece. But I will say that um, and I shared with you, too, I'm, I'm I have a Reiki certification. So I felt like maybe I had my a little bit of a, a lead in to being able to tap mm-hmm. into this. What I found was interesting is um, the challenge in shifting. So where I feel my energy and where I can kind of call in uh, comfort, I call them like my heart shivers is in my is in my sternum and my gut is where I feel my calming. So I had to redirect Mm -hmm. that, you know, through the meditations, we're redirecting that to the top of the head. And that was the part that I did find most challenging, but I absolutely love it because one thing that, well, first of all, just going back to if somebody says they don't have 10 minutes, they're friggin' lying. Okay. And I'm sorry because I know people don't want to hear that. And I know people have very busy lives. I'm fully aware of that. But you have 30 minutes to be on social media. So you have 10 minutes. I promise you do. Right. So um, it's, it's exactly fascinating how quickly the most recent one that I did, it's exactly what you said. I didn't want to come out of it. And I never don't want to come out of things because I have my, I mean, my schedule is wild. I always have 10,000 things to do. And this most recent one that I did this morning, I didn't want to come out of it. And so I just, that's just a testament to the fact that it, that it does work. I'm excited to kind of continue to work to see about bringing it on demand, but yeah, just a quick testament. I I think it's fantastic. Yeah, it is a, uh, meditation is is life-changing it um being able to separate yourself from your thoughts is like a magical experience especially if if you've got racing mind or you you tend to be really anxious or most people spend time in the past because of things they feel guilty about and in the future because of things they're worried about and they spend like zero time in the moment and um, yeah, one of my favorite books is Ram Dass's Be Here Now. You know, that's that's really the key to life is be here now. All right. I'm feverishly scribbling down all these things that you keep mentioning. Books and TED Talks. <laughs> I've got a lot of Googling to do later, Tom. <laughs> so speaking of Be Here Now, Haley and I are working on a book that is modeled after um, Ram Dass's Be Here Now. The first part of the book is going to be the story of the lift of part of which I I shared with you a little while ago. And then the second part is going to be like sayings, uh, poetry. Um, Haley's an illustrator, so um, she'll have illustrations in there, kind of like the original Be Here Now. And then the end will be kind of like our recipe. So it's similar, but but very different. It's also written for for Gen X. And I've talked to a lot of uh, my students and the level of anxiety was it was high to begin with and it was super exacerbated by the pandemic and i mean one of the things that i hear often is that kids are afraid to call for pizza so um if if like you know you picture a bunch of high school kids at a slumber party whatever and it's like you call no you call no i'm not going to call you call and it's just like a really to me it seems very strange but it gave me some insight into what it means to be that anxious and to um, have grown up in a world where our technology lets us be so 
we think we're being extra uh, extroverted, but we're really introspective with all of this stuff. This is a chance, I think, for for Haley and me to really make a big difference in the world uh, because we can teach people how to knock that out on the spot. Okay. So, and you're obviously, you have connections within the school that will give you more insight. I was, I was just going to say, when you said they're afraid to call for pizza, I'm, I'm sitting back and I'm shocked. And I, and I, you know, what I caught myself doing is going into that mode of, well, this is kind of a funny example, but when I was a teenager, we used to prank call people. P.S. That's not an endorsement. (laughs) Don't prank call people. (laughs) <laughs> but I just think of the stark difference between like us prank calling and then these the kids that you're referencing being so full of anxiety that they don't even want to pick up the phone to make a regular call. And I think it's really important to understand because, again, I, I went into that uh, comparison mode. And that's OK if I'm recalling mm-hmm. how mine was like and how it's different. What's not OK is for me to impart that and say, well, I did this, so you should too. No, because we lived very different experiences and that's why things are different. That's why they have this anxiety. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. I love that you guys are working on this. Oh, yeah, it's it's fat. Yeah, I, I taught Haley how to do the lift and she was my student. And uh, so I, I, I knew she was awesome. She, you know, super, super student and did really well in classes. And um, I taught her and as soon as she got it, she was like, Tom, you have to teach this to everybody. And I was like, will you help me? And she said, yes, I will. And that we started the company and, and we've been working on it ever since. So it's really a, a like I said before, um, I was you know giving you kind of a synopsis of, of where I've come from and where I've been. This is something I feel more passionate about than anything I've ever done before. Every business I've ever had has been really calculated. You know, what's the population in the area? What's the average income in the area? The median income, all of that kind of stuff going into data. And this is just like, this is from the gut, go save as many people as we possibly can. I love it. And um, before we go into the three final questions, the actual program itself, especially for anyone who is um, new to meditating, I think and I know, you know, you're saying that it's not necessarily, you're not a meditation expert, but the guided nature, I think is what a lot of people will need to get themselves Mm -hmm. into that spot in order to create the lift. So I think it's super valuable to go through. Uh, Are you ready for the three final questions? Go for it. Mm. Okay. (laughs) So the first question is, uh, we always like to leave with an action item. So what is one question we can all ask ourselves and sit with that might help us shift our way of thinking about difficult topics? That actually brings me back to meditation and what I was saying before about thoughts just being thoughts. They arise. So I would say the question is to question your thoughts and emotions. You said a difficult situation or a difficult conversation. That gets difficult because of the way your subconscious brain reacts to what's going on at the moment. Your subconscious brain is running through a database of all of its beliefs. Everything that ever happened to you is all in there. And not all of it is true. Not all of it is, um, is, is, is even helpful, but it believes it. So I think 
what I would say for us to do is is question those emotions, question how you feel about something when you are feeling negative about something, question the validity of your own thoughts. I love that. I'm in an, I'm in a systems thinking course right now, and that's a big component of it is think about what you think about. What are five words that you would use in your current phase of life to describe yourself? Oh my, more patient, that's two words. Okay, patient, calm, loving. And when I say loving, even people um, I would not normally love, I find some way to love them. Funny, losing anxiety has let my humor come back. I know I'm cheating. I'm going to put a hyphen between these two words, in tune. I'm more in tune now. I understand what Timothy Leary meant when he said, turn on, tune in, drop out. And it had nothing to do with getting high and, and wasting your time. It's actually turn on, tune into those thoughts inside your head, get comfortable with them, and then drop out of your old ways of thinking. Where would you like everyone to go to connect with you? to learn more about Lyft and how to stay connected. Oh, thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate this. It is one word, liftmethodmeditation.com. And you can reach out to me there. Um, we're still small enough that I will answer all the emails that I get through the uh, through the website, or there's a little pop-up that you know, says, if you have any questions, you can type them in there. Um, and you can get, the, there's some testimonials there and you can get to the course there. As I said, there'll be a new course coming out, but people who are in the old course, I'll make sure that they get uh, the new course when it does come out. So one word, Lift Method Meditation. Fantastic. Okay, those will all be on the show notes. We'll make sure to share all of that. Thank you so much uh, for you know coming on and chatting with me. But more importantly, thank you for finding this method and and pursuing it through so that you could put it out for other people to access because I truly believe that you know there's a lot of things that we need to work on but ourselves tapping into that calmness is numero uno. Yes, I agree. Well, thank you so much Heather. I really appreciate it and um yeah, I mean it's I'm a, you know a former army officer, a college professor, I would have said this is all woo woo nonsense until it actually happened to me. And now I'm on a mission to help as many people as I possibly can. And I appreciate your help with that mission. Thank you. Thank you, as always, for listening in today. I hope this episode provided you a new perspective. I believe through conversations just like this, we can all set fire to our ignorance and rise from those ashes together as better humans. Don't forget to check the show notes on ways to connect with Thomas. And keep an eye on our social media at Diversity on Fire, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Threads. Uh, we will be doing a giveaway. One person will get a free course on the Lift to Myth Method meditation. So again, stay tuned and look out for for that announcement and ways where you can enter. Don't forget, this show is not medical advice. The thoughts and opinions that we express today, they're our own. We encourage you to do your own research and come to your own conclusions. If you enjoyed this episode, we would very much appreciate your feedback. Head on over to whatever platform you use that allows ratings and drop us a love note. Don't forget to hit subscribe wherever you're listening now so you never miss an episode. Be sure to share this conversation with others. And until next time, don't forget to check your bias and keep the conversations going. Mm-hmm.